Thanks for listening tonight. If you'd like to listen ad-free and get access to exclusive bonus episodes, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed in the show notes. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. As always, I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's lovely to have you here with me tonight. This evening, we'll be continuing with The Hound of the Baskervilles. But before we begin, let's take some time to settle in. We will start with a big stretch. Think about each of your muscles, from your toes all the way to the top of your head, being washed over by a wave of relaxation. I find the thing that keeps me from drifting off the most is my overactive brain at night. I invite you now to shift your focus to the sound of my voice, and whenever you notice your train of thought veering onto another track, Pick it up and drop it back down onto our story. You'll be asleep before you know it. In our last episode, Watson was waiting in the abandoned hut on the moor for the mysterious man. When the man appeared, it was none other than Sherlock Holmes. He had been hiding on the moors in order to continue a parallel investigation without his fame compromising the actions of the people involved. He revealed a new piece of information to Watson. The woman posing as Stapleton's sister was actually Stapleton's wife. Holmes believes Stapleton to be the villain in the story, manipulating those around him using his cover. Just as Watson was about to go back to Baskerville Hall, they heard a terrible scream and the low moan Watson had encountered before. Following the noise, they came upon a cliff edge and at the bottom was a man's body, killed on impact from the fall. Initially, they recognized the clothing as Sir Henry's, but upon inspection, they discovered it was, in fact, the convict, Selden, wearing Sir Henry's old clothes that must have been given to him by his brother-in-law, Barrymore. Stapleton arrived on the scene shortly after, seeming shocked by what he saw. And that is where we pick back up tonight. Watson and Holmes arriving back at Baskerville Hall and updating Sir Henry with as much information as needed to continue with their investigation unencumbered. So relax and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles.
Chapter 13 continued. Sherlock Holmes stopped speaking and stared fixedly up over my head into the air. The lamp beat upon his face, and so intent was it, and so still, that it might have been that of a clear-cut classical statue, a personification of alertness and expectation. What is it? I asked in unison with Sir Henry. I could see as he looked down that he was repressing some internal emotion. His features were still composed, but his eyes shone with amused exultation. Excuse the admiration of a connoisseur, said he as he waved his hand towards the line of portraits which covered the opposite wall. Watson won't allow that I know anything of art, but that is mere jealousy, because our views upon the subject differ. Now these are a really very fine series of portraits. Well, I'm glad to hear you say so, said Sir Henry, glancing with some surprise at my friend. I don't pretend to know much about these things, and I'd be a better judge of a horse or a steer than of a picture. I didn't know that you found time for such things. I know what is good when I see it, and I see it now, said Holmes. That's a Nella, I'll swear. That lady in the blue silk over yonder. And the stout gentleman with the wig ought to be a Reynolds. They're all family portraits, I presume. Everyone, the baronet replied. Do you know the names? Holmes inquired. Barrymore has been coaching me in them, said Sir Henry. I think I can say my lessons fairly well. Who is the gentleman with the telescope? Asked Holmes. That is Rear Admiral Baskerville, who served under Rodney in the West Indies, Sir Henry explained. The man with the blue coat and the roll of paper is Sir William Baskerville, who was chairman of committees of the House of Commons under Pitt. And this cavalier opposite to me, said Holmes, the one with the black velvet and the lace. Ah, you have a right to know about him said the baronet. That is the cause of all the mischief. The wicked Hugo, who started the Hound of the Baskervilles, were not likely to forget him. I gazed with interest and some surprise on the portrait. Dear me, said Holmes, he seems a quiet, meek-mannered man enough I dare say that there was a lurking devil in his eyes. I pictured him more robust and ruffianly person. There is no doubt about the authenticity, said the baronet, for the name and date, 1647, are on the back of the canvas. Holmes said little more, but the picture of the old roisterer seemed to have a fascination for him. 
and his eyes were continually fixed upon it during supper. It was not until later, when Sir Henry had gone to his room, that I was able to follow the trend of his thoughts. He led me back into the banqueting hall, his bedroom candle in his hand, and he held it up against the time-stained portrait on the wall. Do you see anything there? He asked. I looked at the broad, plumed hat, the curling glove locks, the white lace collar, and the straight, severe face which was framed between them. It was not a brutal countenance, but it was prim, hard, and stern, with a firm-set, thin-lipped mouth and a coldly intolerant eye. Is it like anyone you know? He pressed on. There is something of Sir Henry about the jaw, said I. Just a suggestion, perhaps. But wait an instant. He stood upon a chair, and holding the light in his left hand, he curved his right arm over the broad hat and round the long ringlets. Good heavens, I said in amazement. The face of Stapleton had sprung out of the canvas. You see it now, said he. My eyes have been trained to examine faces and not their trimmings. It is the first quality of a criminal investigator that he should see through a disguise. This is marvelous, I remarked. It might be his portrait. Yes, it is an interesting instance of a throwback, which appears to be both physical and spiritual, said he. A study of family portraits is enough to convert a man to the doctrine of reincarnation. This fellow is a Baskerville. That is evident. With designs upon the succession, I said. Holmes nodded. Exactly. This chance of the picture has supplied us with one of our most obvious missing links. We have him, Watson. We have him. And I dare swear that before tomorrow night, he'll be fluttering in our net as helpless as one of his own butterflies. A pin, a cork, and a card and we can add him to the Baker Street collection. He burst into one of his rare fits of laughter as he turned away from the picture. I have not heard him laugh often, and it has always boded ill to somebody. I was up betimes in the morning, but Holmes was afoot earlier still, for I saw him as I dressed coming up the drive. Yes, we should have a full day today, he remarked, and he rubbed his hands with the joy of action. The nets are all in place, and the drag is about to begin. We'll know before the day is out whether we have caught our big, lean-jawed pike, or whether he has got through the meshes. Have you been on the moor already? I asked. 
I have sent a report from Grimpen to Princetown as to the death of Selden, Holmes said. I think I can promise that none of you will be troubled in the matter, and I have also communicated with my faithful Cartwright, who would have certainly pined away at the door of my hut had I not set his mind at rest about my safety. What is the next move? I inquired. To see Sir Henry, Holmes replied. Ah, here he is. Good morning, Holmes, said the baronet. You look like a general who is planning a battle with his chief of staff. That is the exact situation, said he. Watson was asking for orders. And so do I, replied Sir Henry. Very good, said Holmes. You are engaged, as I understand, to dine with our friends, the Stapletons, tonight. Sir Henry nodded. I hope that you will come also. They are very hospitable people, and I'm sure that they will be very glad to see you. I fear that Watson and I must go to London, said Holmes. To London? asked the baronet. Yes, said Holmes. I think that we should be more useful there at the present juncture. The baronet's face perceptibly lengthened. I hoped that you were going to see me through this business, said he. The hall and the moor are not very pleasant places when one is alone. Oh, my dear fellow, you must trust me implicitly and do exactly what I tell you, instructed Holmes. You can tell your friends that we should have been happy to have come with you, but that urgent business has required us to be in town. We hope very soon to return to Devonshire. Will you remember to give them that message? If you insist upon it, Sir Henry replied. There is no alternative, I assure you, said Holmes firmly. I saw by the baronet's clouded brow that he was deeply hurt by what he regarded as our desertion. When do you desire to go? He asked coldly. Immediately after breakfast, Holmes said. We will drive into Coombe Tracy, but Watson will leave his things as a pledge that he will come back to you. Watson, you will send a note to Stapleton to tell him that you regret that you cannot come. I have a good mind to go to London with you, said the baronet. Why should I stay here alone? Because it is your post of duty, said Holmes because you gave me your word that you would do as you were told, and I tell you to stay. All right, then, said he. I'll stay. One more direction, said Holmes. I wish you to drive to Merripit House. Send back your carriage, however, and let them know that you intend to walk home. Sir Henry looked incredulous. To walk across the moor? Yes, Holmes answered. But that is the very thing which you have so often cautioned me not to do, 
said the baronet. This time you may do it with safety, said Holmes. If I had not every confidence in your nerve and courage, I would not suggest it, but it is essential that you should do it. Then I will do it, said Sir Henry. Holmes nodded and then spoke directly to the baronet. And as you value your life, do not go across the moor in any direction save along the straight path which leads from Merripit House to the Grimpen Road, and this is your natural way home. Sir Henry agreed. I will do just what you say. Very good, said Holmes. I should be glad to get away as soon after breakfast as possible, so as to reach London in the afternoon. I was much astounded by this program, though I remembered that Holmes had said to Stapleton on the night before that his visit would terminate next day. It had not crossed my mind, however, that he would wish me to go with him. Nor could I understand how we could both be absent at a moment which he himself declared to be critical. There was nothing for it, however, but implicit obedience. So we bade goodbye to our rueful friend, and a couple of hours afterwards, we were at the station of Coombe Tracy and had dispatched the carriage upon its return journey. A small boy was waiting upon the platform. Any orders, sir? he asked. You will take this train to town, Cartwright, said Holmes. The moment you arrive, you will send a wire to Sir Henry Baskerville in my name to say that if he finds the pocketbook which I have dropped, he is to send it by registered post to Baker Street. Yes, sir, said the boy. And ask at the station office if there is a message for me, instructed Holmes. The boy returned with a telegram which Holmes handed to me. It read... Wire received. Coming down with unsigned warrant. Arrive 540, Lestrade. That is an answer to mine of this morning, he remarked. Inspector Lestrade is the best of the professionals, I think, and we may need his assistance. Now, Watson, I think that we cannot employ our time better than by calling upon your acquaintance, Mrs. Laura Lyons. His plan of campaign was beginning to be evident. He would use the baronet in order to convince the Stapletons that we were really gone, while we should actually return at the instant we were likely to be needed. That telegram from London, if mentioned by Sir Henry to the Stapletons, must remove the last suspicions from their minds. Already, I seem to see our nets drawing closer around that lean-jawed pike. Mrs. Laura Lyons was in her office, and Sherlock Holmes opened his interview with a frankness and directness which considerably amazed her. I am investigating the circumstances which attended the death of the late Sir Charles Baskerville, said he. 
My friend here, Dr. Watson, has informed me of what you have communicated and also of what you have withheld in connection with that matter. What have I withheld? She asked defiantly. You have confessed that you asked Sir Charles to be at the gate at ten o'clock, said he. We know that that was the place and hour of his death. You have withheld what the connection is between these events. There is no connection, she said. In that case, the coincidence must indeed be an extraordinary one, Holmes replied. But I think that we shall succeed in establishing a connection after all. I wish to be perfectly frank with you, Mrs. Lyons. We regard this case as one of murder, and the evidence may implicate not only your friend Mr. Stapleton, but his wife as well. The lady sprang from her chair. His wife, she said. Holmes nodded. The fact is no longer a secret. The person who has passed for his sister is really his wife. Mrs. Lyons had resumed her seat. Her hands were grasping the arms of her chair, and I saw that the pink nails had turned white with the pressure of her grip. His wife, she said again. Sherlock Holmes shrugged his shoulders. Prove it to me, she said. The fierce flash of her eyes said more than any words. I have come prepared to do so, said Holmes, drawing several papers from his pocket. Here is a photograph of the couple taken in York four years ago. It is endorsed. Mr. and Mrs. Vandeleur, but you will have no difficulty in recognizing him and her also if you know her by sight. Here are three written descriptions by trustworthy witnesses of Mr. and Mrs. Vandeleur, who at that time kept St. Oliver's Private School. Read them and see if you can doubt the identity of these people. She glanced at them and then looked up at us with the set, rigid face of a desperate woman. Mr. Holmes, she said, this man had offered me marriage on the condition that I could get a divorce from my husband. He has lied to me, the villain, in every conceivable way. Not one word of the truth has he ever told me. Why? I imagine that all was for my own sake. Now I see that I was never anything but a tool in his hands. Why should I preserve faith with him who never kept any with me? Why should I try to shield him from the consequences of his own wicked acts? Ask me what you like, and there is nothing which I shall hold back. One thing I swear to you, and that is when I wrote the letter, I never dreamed of any harm to the old gentleman who had been my kindest friend. I entirely believe you, madam, said Sherlock Holmes, 
The recital of these events must be very painful to you. Perhaps it will make it easier if I tell you what occurred, and you can check me if I make any material mistake. The sending of this letter was suggested to you by Stapleton. She nodded. He dictated it. I presume that the reason he gave you was you would receive help from Sir Charles for the legal expenses connected with your divorce, Holmes asked. Exactly, said she. And then, after you had sent the letter, he dissuaded you from keeping the appointment, continued Holmes. He told me that it would hurt his self-respect that any other man should find the money for such an object, she said, and that though he was a poor man himself, he would devote his last penny to removing the obstacles which divided us. He appears to be a very consistent character, said Holmes. And then you heard nothing until you read the reports of the death in the paper. She shook her head. No. And he made you swear to say nothing about your appointment with Sir Charles, said Holmes. He did, she replied. He said that the death was a very mysterious one and that I should certainly be suspected if the facts came out. He frightened me into remaining silent. Quite so, said he. But you had your suspicions. She hesitated and looked down. I knew him, she said. But if he kept faith with me, I should always have done so with him. I think that on the whole, you have had a fortunate escape, said Sherlock Holmes. You have had him in your power, and he knew it, and yet you are alive. You have been walking for some months very near the edge of a precipice. I must wish you good morning now, Mrs. Lyons, and it is probable that you will very shortly hear from us again. Our case becomes rounded off, and difficulty after difficulty thins away in front of us, said Holmes as we stood, waiting for the arrival of our express from town. I shall soon be in the position of being able to put into a single, connected narrative one of the most singular and sensational crimes of modern times. Students of criminology will remember the analogous incidents in Godno, Little Russia, in the year 66. And of course, there are the Anderson murders in North Carolina. But this case possesses some features which are entirely its own. Even now, we have no clear case against this very wily man. But I shall be very much surprised if it is not clear enough before we go to bed this night. The London Express came roaring into the station, and a small, wiry, bulldog of a man had sprung from a first-class carriage. We all three shook hands, and I saw at once from the reverential way in which Lestrade gazed at my companion 
that he had learned a good deal since the days when they had first worked together. I could well remember the scorn which the theories of the reasoner used to excite in the practical man. Anything good? he asked. The biggest thing for years, said Holmes. We have two hours before we need to think of starting. I think we might employ it in getting some dinner. And then, Lestrade, we will take the London fog out of your throat by giving you a breath of the pure night air of Dartmoor. Never been there? Ah, well, I don't suppose you will forget your first visit. Chapter 14 The Hound of the Baskervilles One of Sherlock Holmes's defects, if indeed one may call it a defect, was that he was exceedingly loath to communicate his full plans to any other person until the instant of their fulfillment. Partly it came, no doubt, from his own masterful nature, which loved to dominate and surprise those who were around him partly also from his professional caution, which urged him never to take any chances. The result, however, was very trying for those who were acting as his agents and assistants. I had often suffered under it, but never more so than during that long drive into the darkness. The great ordeal was in front of us, At last, we were about to make our final effort, and yet Holmes had said nothing, and I could only surmise what his course of action would be. My nerves thrilled with anticipation when, at last, the cold wind upon our faces and the dark, void spaces on either side of the narrow road told me we were back upon the moor once again. Every stride of the horses and every turn of the wheels was taking us nearer to our supreme adventure. Our conversation was hampered by the presence of the driver of the hired wagonette, so that we were forced to talk of trivial matters when our nerves were tense with emotion and anticipation. It was a relief to me, after that unnatural restraint, when we at last passed Franklin's house and knew that we were drawing near to the hall and to our scene of action. We did not drive up to the door, but got down near the gate of the avenue, The wagonette was paid off and ordered to return to Coombe Tracy forthwith while we started to walk to Merripit House. Are you armed, Lestrade? Holmes inquired. The detective smiled. As long as I have my trousers, I have a hip pocket. And as long as I have my hip pocket, I have something in it. Good, said Holmes. My friend and I are also ready for emergencies. 
You're mighty close about this affair, Mr. Holmes, said Lestrade. What's the game now? Holmes shrugged. A waiting game. My word, it does not seem a very cheerful place, said the detective with a shiver, glancing round him at the gloomy slopes of the hill and at the huge lake of fog which lay over the Grimpen Mire. I see the lights of a house ahead of us. That is Merripit House, and the end of our journey, said Holmes. I must request that you walk on tiptoe and not to talk above a whisper. We moved cautiously along the track, as if we were bound for the house, but Holmes halted us when we were about 200 yards from it. This will do, he said. These rocks upon the right make an admirable screen. We are to wait here, the detective asked. Yes, we shall make our little ambush here, Holmes said. Get into this hollow, Lestrade. You have been inside the house, have you not, Watson? Can you tell the position of the rooms? What are those latticed windows at this end? I think they are the kitchen windows, said I. Then the one beyond, which shines so brightly, said he. That is certainly the dining room, I answered. The blinds are up, he observed. You know the lie of the land best. Creep forward quietly and see what they are doing. But for heaven's sake, don't let them know that they are watched. I tiptoed down the path and stooped behind the low wall which surrounded the stunted orchard. Creeping in its shadow, I reached a point whence I could look straight through the uncurtained window. There were only two men in the room, Sir Henry and Stapleton. They sat with their profiles towards me on either side of the round table. Both of them were smoking cigars, and coffee and wine were in front of them. Stapleton was talking with animation, but the baronet looked pale and distraught. Perhaps the thought of that lonely walk across the ill-omened moor was weighing heavily upon his mind. As I watched them, Stapleton rose and left the room, while Sir Henry filled his glass again and leaned back in his chair, puffing at his cigar. I heard the creak of a door and the crisp sound of boots upon the gravel. The footsteps passed along the path on the other side of the wall under which I crouched. Looking over, I saw the naturalist pause at the door of an outhouse in the corner of the orchard. A key turned in a lock, and as he passed in, there was a curious scuffling noise from within. He was only a minute or so inside, 
and then I heard the key turn once more, and he passed me and re-entered the house. I saw him rejoin his guest, and I crept quietly back to where my companions were waiting to tell them what I had seen. You say, Watson, that the lady is not there? Holmes asked when I had finished my report. I shook my head. No. Where can she be then, since there is no light in any other room except the kitchen? He asked. I cannot think where she is, said I. I have said that over the great Grimpen Mire there hung a dense, white fog. It was drifting slowly in our direction and banked itself up like a wall on that side of us, low but thick and well-defined. The moon shone on it, and it looked like a great, shimmering ice field, with the heads of the distant tors as rocks borne upon its surface. Holmes's face was turned towards it, and he muttered impatiently as he watched its sluggish drift. It's moving towards us, Watson, said he. Is that serious? I asked. Very serious indeed. The one thing upon earth which could have disarranged my plans, he replied. He can't be very long now. It's already ten o'clock. Our success and even his life may depend on his coming out before the fog is over the path. The night was clear and fine above us. The stars shone cold and bright, while a half-moon bathed the whole scene in a soft, uncertain light. Before us lay the dark bulk of the house, its serrated roof and bristling chimneys hard outlined against the silver-spangled sky. Broad bars of golden light from the lower windows stretched across the orchard and the moor. One of them was suddenly shut off. The servants had left the kitchen. There only remained the lamp in the dining room where the two men, the murderous host and the unconscious guest, still chatted over their cigars. Every minute, that white, woolly plain, which covered one half of the moor, was drifting closer and closer to the house. Already the first, thin wisps of it were curling across the golden square of the lighted window. The farther wall of the orchard was already invisible, and the trees were standing out of a swirl of white vapor. As we watched it, the fog wreaths came crawling round both corners of the house and rolled slowly into one dense bank on which the upper floor and roof floated like a strange ship 
upon a shadowy scene. Holmes struck his hand passionately upon the rock in front of us and stamped his feet in impatience. If he isn't out in a quarter of an hour, the path will be covered, said he. In half an hour, we won't be able to see our hands in front of us. Shall we move farther back upon higher ground? I offered. Yes, he agreed. I think that would be as well. So, as the fog bank flowed onward, we fell back before it until we were half a mile from the house. And still, that dense, white sea, with the moon silvering its upper edge, swept slowly and inexorably on. You're going too far, said Holmes. We dare not take the chance of his being overtaken before he can reach us. At all costs, we must hold our ground where we are. He dropped on his knees and clapped his ear to the ground. Thank God, I think I hear him coming. The sound of quick steps broke the silence of the moor. Crouching among the stones, we stared intently at the silver-tipped bank in front of us. The steps grew louder, and through the fog, as though a curtain, there stepped the man whom we were awaiting. He looked round him in surprise as he emerged into the clear, starlit night. Then he came swiftly along the path, passed close to where we lay, and went on up the long slope behind us. As he walked, he glanced continually over either shoulder, like a man who is ill at ease. Look out, it's coming, said Holmes, and I heard the sharp click of a cocking pistol. There was a thin, crisp, continuous patter from somewhere in the heart of that crawling bank. The cloud was within fifty yards of where we lay, and we glared at it, all three uncertain what horror was about to break from the heart of it. I was at Holmes's elbow, and I glanced for an instant at his face. It was pale and exultant, his eyes shining brightly in the moonlight. But suddenly, they started forward in a rigid, fixed stare, and his lips parted in amazement. At the same instant, Lestrade threw himself face downward upon the ground, I sprang to my feet, my inert hand grasping my pistol, my mind paralyzed by the dreadful shape which had sprung out upon us from the shadows of the fog. A hound it was, an enormous, coal-black hound, but not such a hound as mortal eyes have ever seen. Fire! burst from its open mouth, its eyes 
glowed with a smoldering glare. Its muzzle and hackles and dewlap were outlined in a flickering flame. Never in a delirious dream could anything more appalling, more hellish, be conceived than that dark form and face which broke upon us out of the wall of fog. With long bounds, the huge creature was leaping down the track, following hard upon the footsteps of our friend. So paralyzed were we by the apparition that we allowed him to pass before we had recovered our nerve. Then, Holmes and I both fired together. The creature did not pause, however, but bounded onward. Far away on the path, we saw Sir Henry looking back, his face white in the moonlight, his hands raised in horror, glaring helplessly at the frightful thing which was hunting him down. Never have I seen a man run as Holmes ran that night. I am reckoned fleet of foot, but he outpaced me as much as I outpaced Lestrade. In front of us, as we flew up the track, we heard scream after scream from Sir Henry and the deep roar of the hound. I was in time to see the beast spring upon its victim, hurl him to the ground and worry at his throat. But the next instant, Holmes had emptied five barrels of his revolver into the creature. With a vicious snap in the air, it fell limp upon its side. I stooped, panting, and pressed my pistol to the dreadful, shimmering head but it was useless to pull the trigger. The giant hound was dead. Sir Henry lay insensible where he had fallen. We tore away his collar, and Holmes breathed a prayer of gratitude when we saw that there was no sign of a wound and that the rescue had been in time. Already our friend's eyelids shivered as he made a feeble effort to move. Lestrade thrust his brandy flask between the baronet's teeth, and two frightened eyes were looking up at us. My God, he whispered. What was that? What in heaven's name was it? It's dead, whatever it is, said Holmes. We've laid the family ghost once and forever. In mere size and strength, it was a terrible creature which was lying stretched before us. It was not a pure bloodhound, and it was not a pure mastiff, but it appeared to be a combination of the two, gaunt and as large as a small lioness. Even now, in the stillness of death, the huge jaws seemed to be dripping with a bluish flame, and the small, deep-set, cruel eyes were ringed with fire. 
I placed my hand upon the glowing muzzle, and as I held them up, my own fingers smoldered and gleamed in the darkness. Phosphorus, I said. A cunning preparation of it, said Holmes, sniffing the air. There is no smell which might have interfered with his power of scent. We owe you a deep apology, Sir Henry, for having exposed you to this fright. I was prepared for a hound, but not for such a creature as this, and the fog gave us little time to receive him. You have saved my life, the baronet said. Having first endangered it, said Holmes, are you strong enough to stand? Give me another mouthful of that brandy, and I shall be ready for anything, Sir Henry replied. So, now if you will help me up, what do you propose to do? To leave you here, said Holmes. You are not fit for further adventures tonight. If you will wait, one or other of us will go back with you to the hall. He tried to stagger to his feet, but he was still ghastly pale and trembling in every limb. We helped him to a rock where he sat, shivering with his face buried in his hands. We must leave you now, said Holmes. The rest of our work must be done, and every moment is of importance. We have our case and now we only want our man. It's a thousand to one against our finding him at the house, he continued as we retraced our steps swiftly down the path. These shots must have told him the game was up. We were some distance off, and this fog may have deadened them, said I. He followed the hound to call him off. Of that you may be certain. Holmes replied, No, no, he's gone by this time, but we'll search the house and make sure. <laughs>